This is a fourth hand production. Story in the news today. You believe in ghosts and the paranormal? Crazy experimental, you know, governmental. I don't know. Planes that they're building. Police in Española are catching more than just criminals. They're catching images of what they believe are ghosts. There's this weird animal-like creature that was shot, wolf-like creature that just stood out in some odd ways. Welcome, everybody, to Strange Uncles. I'm Shane. I'm John. I'm so fucking out of patience. <laughs> you and me both, brother. God damn it. Oh, I don't know if it's a timeline that we're all going through or it's just individual to each of us, but I am fucking done on my side. I'll tell you what, with work, god damn. Yeah, that's kind of the one of the reasons I like my job is because it's just like I go to work. It sucks at work. Then when I'm done with work, my work is over. Like right. I don't have to like once I clock out, once we're closed, it's like I'm done until the next time I have to go. Yeah. You don't have to take it home with you. Yeah, exactly. Like no one's emailing me at fucking, you know, eight in the morning. Like, Hey, did you blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, no. Yeah. You don't have like, a day full of meetings that make you want to blow your fucking brains out. <laughs> no, but if I had a day full of meetings, I would want to blow my brains out. It's insane. It almost looks like it, it. It's almost like, and Josh feels for this too. It's the same thing. It, it's like some assholes in the company are literally looking at your calendar, and going, "Oh, that this son of a bitch has thirty minutes available. I'm going to slam a meeting <laughs> in here, and it, it's not going to mean anything. But but I'm going to go ahead and fill that slot. I mean, it just absolutely it just befalls me completely. Yeah. It clearly says you have time here. <laughs> oh yeah, like. And I mean, I don't even get it as bad as a lot of the people that I work with, but it today it was bad. Yeah. Oh, boy. Well, I'm sure a lot of people can relate to that, especially working from home and way more many meetings, I feel like, probably are happening in these days. Well, for sure. COVID times. For sure, for sure. Um, excuse me. I know uh, we're going to get into our topic here pretty soon, but I just wanted to go with a little bit of news that came out today and I don't think it can wait for a news episode. So maybe one more time. So man, Oh man, I've been laughing about this since I read it. It's so funny. Oh my God. I love it. This is the best. This is the best news that's come out all year. Actually, this is a little shining glimmer of hope and the fucking piss 2020 so um sunday evening we're recording this tuesday september 1st so sunday evening what is that uh, august 30th there was a guy flying a jetpack at 3,000 feet in elevation (laughs) around lax like one of the world's busiest airports and their pilots like fly calling into the tower being like Ah, uh, yeah, we got a over to our left. We've got a guy uh, flying a jetpack, <laughs> um, and so these these are actual um, these are actually clips from like the tower and the flights. It's a American Flight nineteen ninety seven. It's like Tower American nineteen ninety seven. We just passed a guy in a jetpack. It's like 
Copy. Tower. <laughs> yep. Tower. American 1997. Okay. Thank you. Were they off to your left or right side? American Flight 1997. Off the left side, maybe 300 yards or so, about our altitude. Um, and then there's a SkyWest pilot confirmed the sighting. SkyWest flight. Uh, we just saw the guy passing by us in the jetpack. Uh, then the tower alerted another uh, JetBlue flight. It's like JetBlue 23, use caution. A person in a jetpack reported 300 yards south of the LA final at about 3,000 feet, 10-mile final. And it's like Jet, JetBlue 23, we heard, and we are definitely looking. And then another <laughs> pilot chimed in, only in LA. <laughs> so there, and at I've been... 30,000 feet? 3,000. Oh, 3, oh. But 3,000 like, is still fuck? like... It's a fucking high. These, a lot of these people that use jetpacks and everything, a lot of them are super low to the ground. Yeah. Or like if they, or if they feet, have, maybe. Yeah. Or like maybe, like a lot of them I've seen are like twenty feet and they're like above water and stuff like that. <laughs> um, but I was like reading some stuff and people with that kind of money or um, technology to be able to use a jetpack that would go three thousand feet into the air, um they're not going to be testing that out in restricted airspace at LAX. Like, you know what I mean? Agre- uh, agreed. Agreed. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. potentially, you know, that guy gets sucked into an engine. <clears throat> that plane's coming down with God knows how many people on board. I couldn't um, even. So imagine. the FBI is now looking into this. You, you think <laughs> it's just Jesus. so insane to me. It's like the craziest story. Like on one hand, it's hilarious. On the other hand, it's quite alarming that like, there's a fucking frat guy with a fucking jetpack being like, dude, check this fucking out. It would fly me. around LAX after I smash a six pack of fucking White Claw. <laughs> Another how, no law with White Claw. That no is very true. You're drinking the claw. I mean, <laughs> you got me there. There are no laws when you're drinking the claw. So, I mean, fuck me, I guess. <laughs> I just can't imagine 3,000 fucking feet. What if those fail? Yeah, That's well, quite so, a fall. So what I was reading too is like I guess the most craziest jetpacks can actually reach up to six thousand feet, oh, but wow. these things can't sustain any uh, like length of time. Like it's super short flights, like especially like that high. It's like yeah. they kind of go up. How quick you know, you're burning through the fuel, not very yeah, long yeah, or whatever. Fly around for not very long, and then they immediately have to come down. So yeah, they, they I can't don't, possibly carry that much fuel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. Um, that's, that's the mystery amazing. remains. We'll see, you know, in the coming weeks or months, if they are able to find anything. Well, you know, about the mysterious <clears throat> jetpack man, the, the, uh, OG rocketeer, but that actually, so number one, I caught that story, but I didn't know it in detail. Thank you for enlightening us, John, because that's fu- I don't know whether that's just fucking dumb or it's amazing. Do you, do you pat the guy on the back? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Right. But that's funny. You bring that up because we are rolling into a subject that is, has something to do with rockets, right? It's insane how perfectly this story segues into the very, very much. (laughs) It's It's insane. It's kind of funny. It's kind of funny. Synchronicity, man. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's one of those things. Um, (laughs) You know, we've been talking to you listeners a while, so we've had some things kind of in in the works. Um, And I think maybe we should mention here too, and we'll maybe do it afterward, boys, that we, so we've got some things lined up. We have some things in the, in the pipeline, but we are actually going to end season three. We're going to take a little two week break. Um, 
a lot of stuff going on and and not only that but you know give us fuel for the fire give us some research materials kind of fuel that up and make sure we have that little reprieve and then we're going to roll into season four we've already got things in the pipeline that already are lined up and interviews waiting so i think you'll be pleasantly surprised but you know it's one of those things that's just kind of like the fall tv season you know you, you need a reprieve so I mean, daddy needs yeah. a break yeah we've been going almost nine months straight every week so uh we just need to just need a little break just just a goddamn vacation (laughs) and we need we just need to catch up too i don't know so yeah yeah, absolutely we all do other we all have other lives outside of this podcast sadly enough we do exactly i mean if you want us to not take breaks you can join our patreon and make it so that we don't have to do our real jobs (laughs) these segues on this episode are just impeccable i i have to say spot on aren't they Uh, it's insane so with that being and said we do have a subject matter this is actually me part one and part two because when uh well john and i kind of did some most of this but then josh already has a huge background of knowledge about this guy in the story um i drink and i know things (laughs) yeah right i have a t-shirt that says that so we uh we're gonna put all this stuff together we're gonna give you guys part one part two then we're gonna take a little two-week reprieve um but this is a setup for this why john is talking about rockets so strange uncles here we ask you listeners this what do rockets and the cult have in common? And I don't know if you guys have that question because I fucking didn't think they had anything in common until I started researching this. <laughs> I wasn't this. sure if that was a rhetorical question or not. <laughs> right, exactly. So, you know, we're talking about an odd, eccentric character that was well-known for his antics back in the 40s and the 50s. And I suppose it's not fair to call this individual odd, even though I, uh, after doing the research, I, I feel he is. I think you guys agree, right? I mean, he's definitely a strange individual, I don't, a genius. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like odd is a pejorative term. I think it's kind of endearing, so I think it's calling him odd is just about perfect. Yeah. Fair, yeah. very fair. Eccentric, yeah, I think the word eccentric or kook, I think, you know, it actually is a compliment in a way. So, you know, there you go. So I get that. Because the reason for this is because he single-handedly led the United States in the science of missiles and rocketry. His ideas were far ahead of their time in the field and continue to add to space science right up in the day he was blown to the other side, literally. And the story is kind of, again, very very amazing, right? (laughs) So, however, this character also had a fascination for the cult. Following the infamous Aleister Crowley's writings and even becoming somewhat friends with Crowley, this man in our history pursued that passion with just as much gusto as he did rocket engineering. Known as a scientist, writer, lover, and somewhat of a warlock, he truly became a legend in his own time and continues your warlockery. <laughs> Stop with your warlockery. <laughs> no shit. And continues to encapsulate the minds of those of us who are curious. It's even said that the abbreviations for the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which I might give it away there, which is still going strong today, actually was named after the initials of this man. So, ladies and gentlemen, we give you the life and times of the infamous Jack Parsons. Open the gates. Like with rocketry, the more you dig into the story of Jack Parsons, the bigger and crazier it gets. Parsons was very influenced by early science fiction and was kind of fascinated by the potential of technology to do something amazing like going into space. 
In his early days, he was experimenting with cherry bombs and blowing things up. The Parsons yard was cratered with explosions gone wrong. Publicly, he was developing a lot of great technologies. Privately, he was hosting sex parties and he was getting involved in this otherworldly stuff that many thought was not becoming of a scientist. And it ended up being this lifestyle that forced him out of JPL. Part rebel, part occultist, and 100% rocket scientist. Hell yeah. Um, so, you know, we kind of rolled into this. We've got somewhat of a write-up, but I think more than anything, we know what's going on. And I'm going to cover my side, John, and then you can cover the book. So what what's really cool about these things, and, and again, between all three of us, either one of us already has a base knowledge for a character or story or something in time, or we don't know, we've heard about it, we're going to go get a book. So we got into this Jack Parsons guy. And I actually ordered on my side a book called Sex and Rockets, The Cult World of Jack Parsons, um, actually written by John Carter and forwarded with, uh, by Robert Anton Wilson. And I got to say, I'm driving up to Zion's National Park. Actually, the wife was, and I was reading this. And even in the very beginning of the Ford, I was like, holy shit, honey, check this shit out. And I'm reading her the book, which usually doesn't happen, but it just blew my mind to the point that just even like page three I was like, Jesus, th- this has got to be a made-up story, right? So that's a book I pull off of. And then, John, I think you had one on your side, right? Yeah, so um, when you guys brought up Jack Parsons, I'd never heard of the guy. Uh, Josh was like, oh, yeah, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, yeah, I have no idea. So I picked up a book called Strange Angel, The Otherworldly Life of Rocket Scientist John Whiteside Parsons. And it was written by a guy named by the name of George Pendle, um, it was really good read, really easy read, um, and fascinating. This guy lived a pretty, uh, pretty interesting life, man. Uh, it was, yeah, we we owe a lot to this guy actually, and I, I feel like history is kind of semi forgotten about him in a certain way, See, to yeah. a degree. Yeah, I and think so. To me, I don't know. Like I knew about him mostly from like like the pop culture aspect of like UFO occult stuff. Like I think there's like a, a ancient aliens episode that they did about him. And there's like a weird, like uh, I can't remember the name of the show, but it's basically like a mystery type show where they talk about how he tried to open the gates of hell in some Canyon in California. And like, Oh yeah. yeah. You succeed. Who knows? <laughs> and yeah. like all sorts of, I don't know. Like I, I th- I thought it was kind of interesting that you hadn't heard of him before that because I thought you would have honestly. Yeah, I I after reading the story, I'm like, how have I never heard of this guy before? Um, because he was highly influential in. I mean, he is kind of the father of uh, rocketry. rocketry. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And here's um, the thing too, because you you this is the thing that amazed me about this story is number one, he was a genius with rocketry and that whole aerospace profession and what that looked like and helped evolve us. I mean, we would have been spinning our wheels without him. And just that aside, he's a fascinating character in history. Now you add the cult on top of that, which is a weirdest fucking combination in the world. And it just brings like, how can a person be so 
genius on one level and and almost like a mad scientist on another. Does that make sense? Like, yeah. I mean, to quote, was, he, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say to quote Robert Evans from Behind the Bastards, he's either the smartest dumb person ever or the dumbest genius ever. <laughs> yeah. There you go. I right. mean, he is the literal sense of the word a mad scientist. I yeah. Mean, yeah, in, in, yeah, absolutely. So if anybody has never heard of this guy, very worthwhile. We um, There's more to a story, but but I, I don't know, boys. I think we're going to give it a go, and we're going to kind of give him justice a little bit on where he came from, what's he doing, you know, what happened, and the people he met, everything. I, I think we – I don't know. I think we're going to take a pretty good stab in the dark, and I think we'll fill this in for you guys for the most part. Um, yeah, let's jerk it on some rockets, boys. Yeah. Oh, no. Sure. Ooh. God damn, I'm all excited now over here. All right, so let's start with this. First of all, this is a little confusing when I first started reading it, and I don't know if it's how the author kind of wrote the book because he was going back and forth between Jack Parsons and his family and this and that, so it was I had to kind of go back again and make sure I understood this, but we're going to be using different names here, and we just want to make sure that you guys are kind of in the know of this, okay? Um, so let's get this little tidbay, tidbit out of the way here. Uh, you may hear us referring to Jack Parsons with different names because um, there actually is a reason for this. Uh, his fellow scientists and engineers in the space science field, to them, he was known mainly to go by John Parsons. But his counterparts in the cult community, he chose to go by Jack Parsons. So we always say Jack Parsons. And it's I, maybe, and I don't know, Josh, if you have any enlightenment on this or John, mm-hmm. maybe this was I to sure separate do. his personal from professional, I would think. But then his actual birth name was Marvel Parsons. And so, I don't know. There you go. There's that. Can we explain that? Yeah. So, his dad was Marvel Sr. And uh, was like kind of an heir to a rich family. Um, but he left their, he left his mom and, and young Jack uh, after he was born to pursue a relationship with a younger woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and Jack was named Marvel Sr. But, or sorry, Marvel Jr. But his... Uh, his mom didn't really want to think about her ex all that much. So she changed his name to John. And then Jack back in the day was just the nickname that people named John got called kind of like Bob was short mm. for Robert. Yeah. Yeah. And Dick is short for Richard. <laughs> you had to throw that in there, didn't you? <laughs> no, that totally makes sense actually. And that, so let's start with that. Let's start with his birth and let's start with some of his names. So yeah, Josh, you're hundred percent right with his dad. Never really wasn't in his life. And I'm sure that his mom wasn't really too keen on the idea of, you know, running around calling him by that name, you know, yeah, for his mom sure. was fucking pissed at, at oh, him. Like, fuck she, yeah. She hated the dude and vowed to like, he uh, just vowed to never let his dad in his life ever again. Like she went through like, cause his dad tried to get in contact with him throughout right. his right. life and his mom's not having any of it. Yeah. She was actually pretty strong. Well, and the thing too, you know, talking about his mom, she did something that usually like back in that day, it never really happened. And that was a big old uh, D I V O R C E. Nobody did that. You just, Hey, once you marry somebody, it's sorry, you're dead. Yeah. Marriage is over. You know, because yeah, we're but, talking, wasn't he born in like 1914 or something like that? Yeah. So that, that's what like I, at the latest, the 1920s. Yeah. And that's, I, so I want to start there real quick and then go into something else that was just kind of weird, I thought. So yeah, he was born, born in 1914. He was born in Pasadena, California. So a lot of what we discuss with his life will be within that California area. Um, he was born on a fall day, October 2nd. And he came to the world, and his life right from the beginning was just kind of weird. Again, not know his father, which we covered, 
you know, he Fair did his thing. His mother Ruth, um, she did the divorce thing. And so um, we talk about Marvel, his original name, and what that looked at, looked like. Um, what was really cool, and this is, I'm going to start weirdness here if you guys are okay with it. So Please. I didn't read his. So he's got writings. And I was going to order them. I haven't ordered them yet. But this book that I read had a lot of excerpts into the book about what he wrote. And what's weird is this. So he wrote about his dad and he wrote about his viewpoints on it. Um, And it was actually in one of the papers called Analysis by a Master of the Temple. Um, This will sound confusing because keep in mind he wrote this in third person. But this is what he says about that experience. Your father separated from your mother in order that you might grow up with a hatred of authority and a spirit of revolution necessary to your work. The Oedipus complex was needed to formulate the love of witchcraft, which would lead you into magic with a K with the influence of your grandfather active to prevent, to complete an identification with your mother. He wrote this in his thing and he did have a granddad in his life, which was kind of his, um, yeah, I guess his father figure, of course, you know, because they lived with the granddad for a while. But uh, I don't know. I, his writings, number one, strike me odd. And, John, I don't know how much in your book that they had pulled writings and excerpts out of his papers, but this one was full of it. Mm-hmm. Well, and part of the reasons why he may have been kind of a strange writer is because uh, he had dyslexia. Mm. And um, another pain. Another. Um, <laughs> you guys talked about that, like the, his mom divorced her husband and that was really strange. I think the reason she was able to do that so confidently and so casually, you know, well, maybe not, I don't know if she did it casually like, Hey Jim, we're, we're out of here. But, um, her dad was filthy rich. Yeah. Yep. So she had all like, literally they had so much fucking money that she didn't need her husband. Like, you know, a lot of women back in the day, I would, I, you know, kind of relied on the single income from the husband, father, whatever. Um, yeah. Her dad was filthy, filthy fucking rich. So that was not on her list of worries. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that was one of those things where, and you know, it was devastating. uh, I guess I can't fast forward that far, but you know, when he did lose his grandfather, which we'll cover later on in the thing, um, it it really shook him hard. You know, I mean, it, it really kind of affected him. Um, this is a fact that I wanted to cover too about his birth. Remember when I was telling you guys that it's just, it's weird that it, his birth started weird, like everything. So everybody has things attached to the birthday or whatever. Well, check this shit out. So this is John's, um, an odd coincidence. And this is just one of many, by the way, a one Charles T. Russell, who's Russellites now calling themselves the Jehovah witnesses, which we all know and love, Right all smiles and pretty, um, predicted the end of the world would happen on October 2nd, 1914, the day of John's birth, and just a couple months after the start of World War I. When Russell announced to his congregation that the end has begun, he meant the finale was not an instantaneous end to all things, but rather the beginning of the end as the book of Revelation states. The appearance of the Antichrist and the harlot and Babylon and the great being two of the key events um, on what he was talking about. So it's ironic that John would later attempt to incarnate Babylon, uh, who had also signed an oath stating that he was an antichrist, was born on the same day, which all follows towards the end of his life. But when he started getting thick into the cult, um, he basically just, this is what he thought he was. So I don't know. I just find that weird that that connection's there. Is that just me? 
Um, I mean, it's it's definitely an interesting coincidence for sure. Or if you're like some people, you believe that there are no coincidences, but mm, true. You know, yeah, that's a it's a whole other thing. But yeah, I mean, strange coincidence, definitely for sure. Especially um, when you think about when he was what just he was about thirteen years old. He says that he uh, invoked the devil in his bedroom. Yeah, no shit. And he would describe the experience later as his magical fiasco, and which which put him off further occult study until he was older. So, like that, pretty much freaked him out for a bit. But I think I'd be right there with him personally. Sorry, call Um, me crazy. He he definitely succeeded and scared himself uh, witless. He says, and so I mean, I don't know how many thirteen year olds there are out there trying to summon the devil uh, i don't know i take a we can throw a survey out there and see who bites but i'm I'm not yeah i don't have the stats uh, on that one so. of our friends did that oh really yeah <laughs> well, there you go <laughs> that's something yeah i don't know it, it maybe well you know 13 teen, okay you know but then again so here's the thing you're looking at a different time frame too this is what he was born in 1914 so this is 1927-ish and, you know, I can see like now with influence and bullshit around you and everything's a screen. You know what I mean? But this is 1927, 19. I, I couldn't even I don't know. It, it just I can't wrap my hand around that just because of yeah. the time frame. You know, it's strange. I mean, and Jack grew up really wealthy. Mm-hmm. Um, so and he didn't have a ton of friends either. Like Jack grew up super well. He was like dropped off at school in a limousine, which I don't think I'd ever want to be dropped off in a limousine. I'd I'd be like, no, drop me off like a block or two. That would be worse than your parents making you tell you that they love them in front of everybody while you're getting out of like your beat up old station wagon. Yeah, <laughs> right. Exactly. Like I just feel like I'd be a target. Like people would just be trying to kick my ass. Um, so maybe for some reason, you know, uh, he he wasn't he didn't have a lot of friends growing up. You know, he'd get dropped off of school in a limousine. He was picked on until he uh, actually made a friend. But maybe, you know, it's just that weird social outcast. He's like, fuck it. Call up the devil in this motherfucker. Let's see. See what happens. Yeah, why not? Well, he did have one What else does a rich kid have to do with no friends? Uh, Summon the motherfucking devil, son. Yeah, true. Maybe maybe <laughs> Beelzebub will bring him some advertisements. <laughs> Is that how oh, that works? Should we, should we uh, break into an advertisement? Yeah, yeah I was going to say. Yeah, well, segue. Sorry, guys. Uh, okay. No, we I caught mean, that. But kinda. it was a segue nonetheless, <laughs> and I think we've been batting a thousand on these segues, so we'll let that one slide. Absolutely. The law of averages. That there you go. Absolutely. Well, let's break into that, and then uh, we'll come back because there are some things. He actually did befriend somebody. And we will mm-hmm. cover that when we return. Stand by, everybody. If you like podcasts and you like science, come on, baby, listen to us. Oh my god! Is that good? <laughs> yeah, that was that was epic. Listen to the Mad Scientist podcast on all of your iTunes and other listening things. I'm your host, Chris Cogswell. Here is my co-host, Marie Mayhew. 
and we sing. We sing. We sing a lot. We sing for science. Yes. We talk about science. We talk about history. We talk about ghosts and monsters and UFOs and things. And it's a lot of yeah. fun. So come learn about yes. ghosts and UFOs and physics and chemistry and a little bit of biology. And about economic collapse. On the Mad Scientist Podcast. Oh my God. All right. And we're back. Um, we covered in the beginning. We're still on, on his 13, 16 yearish age, right? You know what he kind of did. Um, and again, this is something that came from his write-ups. Here's another one that I found interesting that I stumbled upon. Uh, Jack Parsons says early adolescents continue the development of the necessary combinations. The awakening interest in chemistry and science prepared the counterbalance for the coming magical awakening, the means of obtaining prestige and livelihood in the formative period and scientific method necessary for my manifestation. Big words, for sure. Yeah, he knows what he's talking about. Um, but he did have one friend, and John, you we mentioned it real quick, but we had a, he had a lifelong friend that he met back in eighth grade. A guy yeah. by the name of Edward yeah, he, Foreman, it, right? Yep, and he ended up being... Exactly, a lifelong friend stick stuck with him <laughs> until the very end. Yeah, no shit, um, right? Literally, Good old Ed. Yeah, his, his name is uh, Ed Foreman, and he actually saved Jack Parsons from being bullied. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, he, he was bullied quite a bit until um, Ed Foreman kind of stepped in, and you know, he was a bigger kid that could take care of himself, and he kind of took Jack under his wing, and. Um, Later in Parsons' life, he would call his friendship with Foreman essential in developing his male center. So if it wasn't for – I think Jack would have ended up being way more eccentric than he already was without um, Ed Foreman's kind of guidance and help and friendship. I think so, too. Yeah, yeah. I think that that would – taught him how to be somewhat normal. Yeah, not quite an introvert. So, you know, and on top of the fact is, you know, I mean, they befriended each other because they, you know, they both had the love for Jules Verne, uh, amazing stories, the magazine, all this stuff that they both – oh, this is cool. Well, then all of a sudden they realized that another love, which, you know, I can't say that this is unique to Jack and or Edward, but, you know, because, I mean, I liked it, too, who didn't really do this when, when they were a kid, but they found out that they love fireworks. Both yeah. of them. This was a thing. This what kind of connected everything that was going on. And John, you mentioned that this guy's going to be with him to the very end, and absolutely he was. But they were from the very beginning of his, I, I guess, his first dabble in rocketry and what that would look like. It was him mm-hmm. and Ed doing these things in the backyard, just <laughs> blowing shit up, basically. Yeah. So um, it was kind of Parsons' like interest in rocket rocketry that captivated Foreman, and basically it was between Parsons money that he had and Foreman's engineer father, the two would have plenty of materials to work with. So they kind of just dive right in. And Ed Foreman said that it was their desire and intent to develop the ability to rocket to the moon. And yep. this is in a day and age where that is ridiculous. Oh, oh, oh that's, that's not a, even, that's a, yeah, that's yes. a ridiculous notion. Um, the scientific world thought rockets were fireworks Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're still we're still talking like the late twenties at this point, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah we're not 20s. even we're not even approaching. We're, we're not really even in the thirties yet, to be honest with you. Yeah, no, we're not. No, so. um, and like literally, the scientific world thought rocketry was for children, um, mm-hmm. and it was just for Chinese fireworks. You know, like nothing. There was there was no significance in learning any more about rocketry, and the t- the pair actually uh, adopted a motto. 
and it was ad astra per aspera through rough ways to the stars. Oh, mm. funny. Was, I never heard there. that. All of a cool. sudden, the title of that Brad Pitt movie, Ad Astra, makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> Good yep. call, dude. I never thought about that either. That's cool. What gets me in the whole thing is when they were kids dabbling in this whole thing, I mean, they were literally going past fireworks and fucking around with versions of solid fuel rocketry. I mean, yeah. back in the day, that, yeah, that was a thing. He, they started experimenting with using glue to keep the loose powder together mm-hmm. in their in their quote unquote engines. Yep. Well, and that's where um, that's where their relationship kind of ebbed and flowed off of each other, like kind of the yin to the yang or something. For the worst explanation ever. Um, but <laughs> no, I, I, knew, I knew it though. <laughs> but like you know, Parsons was the he was the brain, he was the science, and Ed Foreman he was the builder. He was kind of the mechanic. Right. So it's like, Hey, I've got this idea. And then Ed Foreman would kind of like work on building the actual rocket to contain all of the, you know, the, the, the components that would make the rocket go off. Yeah. But what a team though. I mean, you think about that. I mean, if you, it can't be more perfect, you know, you have this guy that can do this, you have this guy can do this and they work so well together that uh-huh. you know it it just it's like a set of gears you know what i mean yeah. it's the only way i can explain it it's crazy so and they they really just had a one track mind too it was it was rockets 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 right. rockets like right you know they might have chased girls a little bit but i mean their it was their love of rocketry that just was constantly oh, on their Jackie mind. Parsons was chasing oh, some fucking boy. girls. He was, yeah, but that came was. a little bit late. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll, once we'll once get, he grew into his boyish good looks. <laughs> we'll get into the, the Vaz chasing for sure, you know, but I think that that sets us up at this point. So, you know, I mean, that was his whole teenage years with Ed. And again, they went hand in hand doing all this. Um, but so much so what they were doing, they were mixing all this together that he started, They well, both of them started getting noticed by other people in the rocketry field. So in 1932, Parsons actually took his first job with the Hercules Powder Company out of Pasadena. Um, And that's kind of his first job, and that's him into adulthood. And then after that, uh, John married in 1935. He married a one, Helen Northrup. And I don't know, on my side, my book really didn't cover that timeline between, you know, his marriage. And then I guess... He lost his family fortune somehow in the mix of that. Was that covered in your book, John Moore in Depth? Um, yeah, well, it's not somehow. It's a little thing called the Great Depression. So, um, yeah, once the Great Depression hit, uh, they, you know, John wasn't being dropped off in limousines anymore. Um, his grandfather lost a considerable amount of money. Um, I think they were still well-to-do, but uh, his grandfather passed away Um Around right around that, around time, that time as well. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, he, they were kind of out on their own after the Great Depression and after his grandfather passed. So it's like lose all the money. Grandpa dies. Now he's kind of in a whole other world, and he kind of has to defend, like fend for himself in a bit. I mean, they still had a little bit of money, but nothing like where they were at while his grandfather was alive. So did he inherit the parsonage from his grandfather or from his father? I, I thought it was from his father, but I might be wrong about that. Um, crap. You know what? Yeah, I don't, I don't on my side. I thought it was his grandfather, but they, it, my book didn't really go into detail on that. So I'm not sure. Here that, we are, That's folks. somewhere we, in here. I mean, it, it's going to talk. Um, I'm not sure. I think he did get his full name from his father. I think. Mm-hmm. Oh, no. I, I mean, 
uh, the mansion, the inheritance, the whole yeah, the whole oh, house. It, it, it was well, yeah, it was from his grandfather. Okay, sorry, I might be jumping ahead. I just was couldn't remember for real. Yeah, we but I mean, he he bought he bought another mansion way after this. That it was. Yep. Yeah, it was his, but that's that's when we're getting into the whole basically weird commune. Weird uh, yes, oh that's, yes, that's the fuck palace. <laughs> that's yeah. the fuck palace. Yeah, and he yeah, actually that wasn't his grandfather. That was just his. Right, right. Yeah, and that. So yeah, we're we're leading up to that slowly but surely because that's when shit starts getting fun. Um, yeah, this is actually <laughs> uh, an interesting thing. Is Southern California suffered the highest bankruptcy rate in the country? Oh wow. Um, during the great depression. And although Walter Whiteside did his best to keep up his standard of living within two years, his fortunes had ebbed away the limousine, which Jack, uh, dropped Jack off at school each day disappeared. And Ruth Parsons began to work as a shop assistant back in hated Los Angeles. Ooh. And even the view from their house had spoiled. And the four years after the crash, 79 despairing investors plunged to their death from the graceful curves of the Colorado street bridge. Jesus. So um, it was a thing, evidently, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Parsons left school in 1931, as did Ed Foreman. Mm-hmm. And Foreman dropped out of school completely, and he's just started out the round of odd jobs. Uh, and the last of the Whiteside fortune went towards sending Parsons to the university school, and it was a private all boys establishment in Pasadena. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, that's the same time again, you know, 32 when he actually got that job with Hercules Powder Company. And that all kind of rolled into that that mess. So yep, yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, and so here's another thing too to mention is that through all this, I mean, and again, granted, you know, now he's older. Now he graduated. He's got his first job. Ed is doing his thing. Um, what we mentioned in the beginning about his love for the cult, and maybe in, you know, 13 years old, the whole you know summoning Satan scared the shit out of him. He still always had it in his back pocket the whole time. He still had a love for the mm-hmm. cult. He didn't really pursue it necessarily. And maybe at the time it was more of a, you know, you're reading weird fantasy stories and you're doing that. And I don't know if that would be con- considered necessarily a cult. But once he got that first job, you know, he kind of always had this stuff on the side still going. Um, yeah. There was a character, and, a, and a, probably in your book more likely, John, a, a guy by the name of Von Karman. Um, he actually oversaw Galsit or later known, it would be known as NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, he had a quote uh, that he had to say about Parsons, which I thought was kind of funny. He says, uh, John was a delightful screwball. He would recite pagan poetry to the sky while stamping his feet. And he would do it a lot during their tests when they were actually testing out new Mm -hmm. rockets in this thing. Like he integrated that, you know, the cult side of it into his actual profession, which I I find funny. Yeah, right. Exactly. So, um, yeah, he would like, well, I mean, you're going to get to this, so I'll just shut up. <laughs> okay. <But>. Well, <laughs> l- well, let's continue a little bit. Yeah. Th- this will probably yeah. kind of clear your Keep thing. Keep going, please. Yes. Um, so this was in reference to Alistair Crowley's Hymn to Pan, which Parsons loved to recite. Um, and again, we'll cover it in the back. Him and Crowley, it, it got weird quick, really. Um, other oddities Parsons would love to do is invoke Pan, the wild horn god of fertility, before each rocket test. 
So we can go a little deeper in regards to Parsons' work on rocketry, his experiments, his discoveries, the people he intertwined with through his whole profession, um, his involvement with JPL, which is Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of stuff there. I think, number one, we can just set aside and say, you know, and again, if you two, you have anything you add to, like his his mind I, on rocketry we, is cool, but that's really not I, uh, there's the cult is what we're more interested in and how he worked with that. But do we have anything else past like his career, his profession? Yeah. I mean, so, there's a million things. Oh, I know. I know. God. Um, he, him and uh, Ed Foreman actually were pen pals, not necessarily pen pals, but young kids that really looked up to a one Werner von Braun as well. Mm-hmm. And Werner Fuck that guy. Von Braun. Well, yeah. Okay. But yeah, I get it. But that we're not talking about that right now. <laughs> Sorry. But, John. I'm just saying that um, that's just another interesting aspect um, that he was in communications with him at a young age as well. Well, he should look up to him because he was another, I mean, being fucking aside from being a goddamn Nazi, um, he he was a genius. Brilliant scientist. Yeah. He also had great things to say about Parsons um, as well. As well. Like it was like mutual admiration. Yep. Yep. Um, I like when he would, recite the hymn to pan before the launches of their rockets like i just picture him it it reminds me of greg newkirk for some reason Uh, well for a specific reason from when they would were reciting the hymn to pan and hellier and stuff but every time i hear about that it just makes me think of greg newkirk and it makes me laugh and smile yeah i i always just picture uh jack parsons doing it way more energetically and excitedly Mm mm-hmm I feel like Gary Kirk was like, oh, my God, what are we doing? Who am I summoning? <laughs> yeah, right? Is this a good idea? I don't know. You know, yeah, I don't yeah. see Jack Parsons as having any reservations. Nope, absolutely no, he was not. like, you better show up. That's right. Yeah. I mean, he had the love for it, and you could tell. He had the passion. That didn't bother him one fucking bit, for sure. So, anyway, and here's another fun fact, too, in, revol- in regards to uh, the jet propulsion, his rocketry thing. Um, so it's said or suspected that when Galsite became the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, uh, it's kind of pretty strange on Parsons' involvement with this organization. And some say the initials, and we said this in the beginning, uh, the initials JPL actually stands for Jack Parsons Laboratory. Did you guys catch it? I mean, I caught that right off the get-go, and then I read it afterwards. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. You know, because they really... I guess to this day when you tour, they have, there's pictures, there's like a little mini museum set up to him and his colleagues, you know, that started that whole thing. Yeah. Well, I think they wanted to call it something else originally, but rocket was so taboo that they did jet instead because Fair. if they put rocket in their name, the mainstream scientists just laugh at him, just laugh at him and call him ridiculous, which, um, just always goes back to science being so arrogant and dumb and like they Absolutely. should never laugh at anything fringe because all science is fringe. Yep. Yep. Yeah, that's, it, I never got it that. All starts as fringe for sure. And yeah. some of it becomes and then, mainstream and yep. And then to laugh at anything and be like, Oh, that's, that's ridiculous. It's like, well, you're a stupid scientist. What do you know? <laughs> fair. Very fair. Just arrogant scientists, not stupid, but well, and it's like, how long has it been since you actually studied whatever, like whatever your focus of your field is, how long has it been since you've looked at anything that you weren't narrowly focused on that you're now right, right. poo-pooing as fringe bullshit. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah, like, like you, you even you, still yeah. see that today. Yeah, oh, like when we absolutely. Were covering um, the the patents that I can't remember his name, but the guy from the 
Navy filed. Yeah, like La Paz or something like yeah, that. Yeah, and there were like other physicists that were like, this is fucking complete bullshit. <laughs> and it's like, well, yeah, but like how long has it been since you looked at something like that? Like you're an astrophysicist. You're not looking at like actual propulsion. You know what I mean? Well, this is yeah. the thing. They get comfortable. You know, you, you make a name for yourself. You make it, you carve out a groove for yourself and what you're doing. And then a lot of people just write on the coattails of that reputation. And there's no, you know, reviewing your knowledge, updating what you have, researching back, finding a new, none of that happens for a lot of these guys. You know, they, they're just, they're just fucking old and crotchety and there they are, you know, they're, yep. they're important and you're not. So fucking dickheads. Yeah. Right. Well, Shane, are you wanting to move on to the occult? Um, I was, so I was going to say my next notes on my side, uh, kick us off around 1939. Uh, do either one of you have anything before that? Or well, I just, if we're going to kind of glance over all the amazing things he kind of did. <laughs> yeah. Let's get um, this too. I mean, I just right, want right. to say real quick, like what he did before his death at 37. So he died at 37. But, like, this dude had accomplished more in 37 years than people remotely did in their whole entire life. Um, so after he died, um, the papers, you know, came out and were listing just, like, everything, just all of his accomplishments when he died. And he had been a scientist at the California Institute of Technology, Caltech, in Pasadena. And while there, worked with the famed Theodore von Karman. And first of all, Caltech fucking hated all like him and they eventually called them the suicide squad. Yeah. Yeah. Suicide right. squad. They were constantly hearing explosions in this wing. Shit shaking. Um, at <laughs> first they were only allowed into the labs after hours. Um, they were the joke of Caltech. No, like, I mean, we've said no one took them seriously, but you know, they, it was just like ducks with water. It just always went off their back because they loved what they were doing. They didn't care. Yep, absolutely. And eventually he became, and also he wasn't formally, formally educated, but eventually he did become like a main guy at Caltech and worked with the famed Theodore uh, von Karman, the president presiding genius of aeronautics. Um, he had been one of the founders of the prestigious jet propulsion laboratory. Like we said, yeah. Um, he was engaged in top secret governmental work during the second world war. He was recognized as one of the foremost authorities on rocket propulsion and had been a member of the American chemical society, the Institute of aeronautical sciences, the army ordnance association and the exclusive. And I don't know how to say this, but it's Sigma XI fraternity. In addition to all this, he even, uh, he had even dallied in the world of commerce as one of the founders of the hugely successful Aerojet Engineering Corporations, an aerospace company rich with governmental research projects. Yeah, and he also had um, – so he had some people, some buddies that would run around with him that kind of followed him throughout – not really followed him, but, they, you know, they all worked together, you know, through this whole – uh, division of rocketry and what they had, you know, they founded their own thing. Um, you yep. mentioned Von Karman and other ones too. There was a guy called Molina, uh, Summerfield. Molina. Yep. Yep. Uh, Parsons was one foreman. Um, they all kind of, and then Andrew, or no, wait, he was a, sorry, he was an attorney, but Summerfield and then foreman, all of them kind of for a lot of his professional life stuck with one another and followed one another through what they were doing, which, which I, I, I thought that was kind of neat on that own yeah. respect. And I, I also think it's a testament to his uh, genius that even, even in the fledgling field of rocketry and as throughout his life as it, it 
became more and more of an actual science and a, and a real like tangible thing that people were willing to put up with his eccentricities because of uh, how accomplished he was in it and, and Absolutely. how integral he was to how, to what it became, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I yep. much agreed. I mean, and again, it's just, I, I kind of, I don't know. On a side personal note, I kind of kick myself in the ass not really knowing, even aside from the cult, how important this person was in the science engineering field. You know, I, I just it just goes to show you, you always hear these names fly out there, Tesla and Einstein and all. But then you got some guy like this that, you know, unless you really dig for it, it's just in history, you know, he gets shuffled. He gets lost. You know, it's a shame, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, honestly, if it weren't for what we're about to get into, um, I think he probably would have been forgotten, honestly. Yeah, no, I'm with you. I understand exactly what you're saying with that. Um, Well, with that being said, do we want to take a quick break before we roll into the weird? All right. So let's go ahead and do that. Stand by for ads, guys. What up? Fart knockers. Aries. Stop insulting people. These are potential listeners. Yeah, I'm so sure. Happy horror coffee break, old time horror radio show. We take the best and worst <laughs> creepy pasta stories online, and our finest of quality reenactors perform them for you in the style of old timey horror radio dramas. Everyone knows it's just you disguising your voice poorly. No, it's not. Besides, we have an abundance of great guests. There's music and t-shirts. And a bunch of dick and fart jokes. You're not wrong. (laughs) Catch us on all the major podcasts, thingamawoppers. We're on Apple, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Schlapstick, Hard Knockers, and the rest. Idiot. Tune in every other Friday. There's a new episode. Or just stick your head in an oven. Same difference. Aries. <laughs> we need to have a little chat. <laughs> Toodles! The fourth hand joins. So around 1939, Parsons stumbled on something that would change his life forever. So while Parsons was rummaging through a library that Robert Rapinski had, who was another interesting character, by the way, in the cult world, I've never heard this Rapinski guy either, and I kind of dug into him a little bit on the side and... I, I don't know. I'm opening Pandora's box when I struck into the shit, at least on my side. So um, Parsons stumbled on a copy of Aleister Crowley's Knox Ompax, published in 1907, which Rapinski had bought years earlier. Rapinski was quoted as saying, quote, finding that discovery was like real water to a thirsty man. Rapinski himself never could figure out the dense book, so he just gave it to Parsons. Parsons soon after decided to reach out to the author Crowley directly, and that's when Parsons' first intimate relationship with an infamous occult figure began. It began there. And you know what? We Part two is going to cover a lot in the weeds with Crowley and his whole mix with Parsons, and, and because that just... that's a, It seems like that's another fucking story altogether that shouldn't even belong in Parsons' life, but it's there, if that makes sense. It's just fucking crazy. Yeah, it's it's really weird how he got involved with Aleister Crowley. Yeah, and um, it was easy to. Well, you know what though, you know, and I'm sorry, I'm not trying to poo-poo people that, and it's not because they're in the cult, but I do research on Crowley here and there, and the more I research him, and the more I hear about him, Crowley was a fucking shitty character in history. 
Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely. He, he wasn't a good dude. He, no, he used no. he used Jack Parsons <clears throat> and everybody in that little mm-hmm. um, yep. in the Oto. Um, he used like he'd pit them against one another and mm-hmm. just try and use them for his benefit. Yeah, uh, well, and this is oh, well, this is a good example of right here. So this is funny. Um, you know, Crowley's going to come in and out of a Parsons life, you know, which wasn't that long sadly enough but one of the other characters that you're talking that were pinning against one one another it was a man by the name of wilfred talbot smith smith was put to work by crowley to represent crowley's mysterious order called ordo templi orientis or auto for short so just oto and that's how we'll refer it from here um smith was tasked as being the representative for odo in the pasadena area which seems an odd coincidence that Smith would be so close to Parsons' location. I, again, maybe there's no coincidences in the universe, but I don't know. This whole story just seems like it's odd. Um, oh, I mean, they are magic practitioners, so uh, I don't know. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and like, they dabble in chaos magic, and that's a big portion of bringing things to the right pattern. So, I, you know, there's that. But here's the thing with Smith. So his original location uh, was close to London. Uh, he started his magical career as a member of the original Agape Lodge in Vancouver, BC. Agape. Uh, Smith McCrowley. <laughs> right. Uh, my mind went right to Uck. Okay, anyway. Smith McCrowley for the first time in 1915, at by the time had moved to a pretty high muckety muck area in the lodge, or not area, but a position in the lodge, basically. So Smith moved to LA in 1930 to open the Agape Lodge for Crowley. Parsons became involved in the lodge when he was brought by a science colleague of his house to Smith's house, after which Parsons and his wife, Helen, began attending the various meetings of the lodge. What I find was funny was Helen was already going to these meetings. And so, you know, you would think that Parsons was the only one that was kind of involved in the weird and the cult and doing that. But no, that wasn't the case. His wife was kind of interweaved into that whole fucking mess, too. Oh, yeah. His, his wife was into it. Oh, for sure. She, well, I don't, I don't think Parsons had to drag her or convince her to do much of anything. No, I don't think so either. You know, and maybe it's a thing. This is kind of how I see it. And this is me just, you know, maybe this is it. Maybe it isn't. Um, obviously, you know, his rocket thing was a thing. And he spent, he sounds like he had the type of personality. It was just, it was driven. It was, his mind was always on. He always had something going on and, and he would focus, focus on one thing. So pulling, even though the cult was kind of a thing, rockets was what he was focused on. That's what he was concentrating. And then all of a sudden when this started creeping up into the backside of his life, the lodge and his wife and all the, these other characters, he shifted gears way completely too far off the rocketry to get into this whole weird shit. And I, and I, I don't know. That's just a theory I had reading his story, but I don't know. What, what are your thoughts? Josh? Uh, I don't know, man. Like, I kind of feel like he had both going on and also I know, I don't know about the whole time, but I know like uh, later, the deeper he got into, uh, into the occult, he was also doing like shitloads of speed. Oh yeah. So add that to the, so I mean, problem. maybe he was perfectly fine thinking about both. I don't know. Could be. Oh, maybe he found the balance. I don't know. This is what was kind of funny. So by this, by the day, he was a student of physical sciences. By night, he was a student of the cult sciences. So in his writings, analysis by Master of the Temple, he also wrote this, and this was um, this was his first impressions of Smith. Quote, the alternate repulsion and attraction you felt for the first year after meeting Smith were caused by a subconscious resistance against their ordeals ahead. 
Had you had these experiences before, without such resistance, you would have become hopelessly unbalanced. So, I, you know, second-guessing himself in a way, I suppose. But anyway. Um, let's say, so around 1940, Parsons was receiving accolades, not only from his peers, again, in the aerospace industry. So, yeah, you, you might be right. Maybe he kept that all in check. They were still making advancements. They were still making breakthroughs. Um, but also his personal life on the other side. So one of the yeah. other... Oh, go I mean, ahead. I don't imagine it as like a blind plunge. I think it was probably an easing into, you know what I mean? Mm, yeah. Like, I know he was always into the occult, but I, I don't see him going from like, I'm a rocket scientist that is into the devil and shit to like full blown, like, fuck everything. Let's sex magic all day long. Like, it's a, <laughs> that's it not a bad thing. Like, I don't kind see- of a, a curve, not a hockey stick. You, <laughs> you know don't what I'm think saying? so? Well, this is a whole thing. Like he sold one of the companies that his, um, him and his buddies founded, and so after that was done, this is when he kind of went more into, you know, the cult side of things a little bit. But I, you know, and again, that's why I came my assumption. It could be, it could be either way. I don't know. Maybe he just had that balance, and it was a perfect balance. I, you know, shit. I don't know. So. I mean, yeah, the dude had a lot of energy because I know he'd party all night and then go into the hot desert and work on rockets all day Yeah, and just do that over and over and over. Well, you talk about partying all night, so this is a good example of that. So one of the people in John's esoteric circle of friends that he's meeting all these people all of a sudden uh, is a woman by the name of Jane Wolf. So Jane was an actress in movies like The Woman Next Door, Men, Women, and Money, and Behold My Wife, which I have not heard of any of those. But Behold, again, this is my wife <laughs> in roll credits. <laughs> so, um, Wolf had chosen the magical name. Soro Este had been with Crowley at his Abbey in Italy. Um, and then she came back to California and the Gape Lodge. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm going to laugh every time I read that. Uh, do you think it's called agape? I was agape, wondering the maybe. same thing. I, you know what? I say agape, I think, because this sounds funny, but it probably is agape. That- that and like uh that's how i heard it too but um i wonder because agape is like a the greek word for love that's like the type of love that's like friendship right is it okay well that i know it's makes a greek sense. word for love i don't remember which type of love because there are like three different greek words for different degrees of love like friendship bone and well i find a gape is a sort of love as well so we can call it whatever <laughs> we sure sure okay a gape agape tomato tomato tomato, tomato potato you know. potato yeah so yeah, anyway you're, you're probably right more than likely i don't know um so wolf talked about her first impression of parsons in december 1940 again this is uh in reference to jane wolf unknown to me john whiteside parsons a newcomer began austral travels Incidentally, I take Jack Parsons to be the child who shall behold them all at 26 years of age, six foot two, vital, and potentially bisexual at the very least. I see him as the real successor of Theron Crowley, which is Alistair, passionate and has made the vilest analysis result in a species of exultation after the event. He has had mystical experiences which gave him a sense of equality all around, although he is hierarchical in feeling and in the established order. So she had a lot to say, evidently, about good old Parsons. Yeah, I mean, it seemed like he was more devoted than anybody to that. And, um, uh, man, I want to talk about this, but I don't know if it's just getting ahead of ourselves about how basically Crow- talking about how Crowley was just kind of a shitty dude. Mm. Um, well, we haven't talked about 
We'll talk about Jack Parsons' other wife, his next wife. I, I was going to say that, that will lead into that into might be what I was yeah. Talk about yeah, yeah, that might be a part two thing because that's a whole nother rabbit's tail on that side. Because yeah, this Smith guy, this Smith guy that uh, is like the leader of the Oto at the moment. Yeah, uh, man, he totally gets fucked. Oh, he abs. Oh, Jesus Christ! Yes, he absolutely does. So sorry, listeners. We don't mean to set this up for you, but you know it is what it is. Um, this is something else too. So we're going to wrap up this, and then we're going to kind of set you up for. Um, part two, because as weird as this sounds, part two is fucking even weirder down the rabbit hole. Um, this is another thing that was going on in Parsons' life, and he really didn't know about it till later on. Um, something else was he was so Parsons' peers in the science and the cult were watching him closely, obviously because of all of his accomplishments, not only professional but with the cult going on. So now you got these two weird things kind of matching. Um, and then also was the FBI. So the FBI had extensive files on Parsons and brought him in more than once to discuss his intentions. So we had thought he had that going for him, the whole FBI thing. And, uh, you know, after a year of attending meetings and the Gnostic mass, again, we're back to his, his other side, John and Helen Parsons became official members of the, I'll use agape, I guess, even though I like agape, became official member of the lodge <laughs> in February 15th, 1941. Just a few weeks after they joined, Smith wrote to Crowley, and this is where we're going to set this up. I think I have at long last an excellent man, John Parsons. And starting next Tuesday, he begins a course of talks with a view to enlarging our scope. He has an excellent mind and much better intellect than myself. John Parsons is going to be valuable. Hmm. And he... He does, definitely. He absolutely yeah. does. So Parsons moved up fairly quick. Um, he became, his his name, his magical name was uh, Frater, Frater, well, F-R-A-T-E-R. How would you guys say that? Frater. Uh, Frater? Yeah, it's, Long I a. don't remember what language, but I think it means brother. Is that what it is? Okay, so Frater, uh, Topan, all in periods, and was known as Frater 210 for short. The initials in Parsons' magical motto stood for the Thelemum Abdemptum Procidero Amortis Nuptiate. This was, uh, Latin, okay. this was Latin for... Oh, do you get that? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I use that word three times today. This Go was on. Latin for <laughs> the obtainment of the Thelkama or the will. So basically, attainment of the will is what that that whole representation is through the nuptials of love. Topan was also a declaration of Parsons dedication to pan in Hebrew. The numeration for Topan is standby guys, 400 plus 70 plus 80 plus one equals 601. Parsons counted it as I O P A N I O pan given the more desirable sum two ten. Again, now we're into numbers magic, which we covered, but this is way over my head. Uh, with I.O. Pan being Greek for Hail Pan. So wrap your fucking heads around whatever that means. Uh, that's dedication. Pan. <laughs> it's part of the hymn. It's a pan. Yeah, well, right, yeah, but the whole formula behind it is, oh, my God. So to touch bases real quick on John's professional life, in 1942, uh, once he's got all this magical stuff going on, he was also one of the founders of the Aerojet Corporation, which is now one of the largest manufacturers of rockets in the world to this day. The corporation was founded by Parsons, Von Karman, Molina, Summerfield, and Foreman, which we discussed earlier. Um, this was a huge boost for Parsons and his team, and it landed major military contracts, which John covered a little bit earlier, uh, further development, among other things. So in 1942, John and his wife moved to the old Arthur Fleming mansion, just blocks from where he initially grew up. 
Parsons leased the house, and the Agape Lodge relocated to the Parsonage, what they called it, as it became to be known. So John's kookiness continued. Parsons' bedroom upstairs, which was the largest room, doubled as a temple. There was also a obligatory copy of the Stell of Revealing, an Egyptian tablet that had inspired Crowley during his trip in 1904 to Cairo, which... Suppose you guy. I don't know if you listeners know that story. He had somebody, a spirit, recite to him, and he wrote this whole fucking thing. Anyway, that's another thing. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. That story is insane. That's an, that's another crazy on top of crazy on top of crazy. So yeah, I guess we'll get we'll get into that on episode two. Yeah, I, I think we should cover it a little bit, you know. So yeah. the Parsonage also contained a beautiful library with wood paneling, a large sign portrait of Crowley, hundreds of books on occult matters, and the numerous letters exchanged between Parsons and between Crowley. So Parsons started pissing off his high-end neighbors, um, such as Lily Anheuser-Busch, widow to Adolf Bush, which I find funny. <laughs> You're right, exactly. Uh, Parsons started renting out rooms to a menagerie of crazy characters, many of them less than desirable for sure. Between the visitors, the frequent parties, and the questionable goings-ons, he drew the police various times. But every time they arrived, there really wasn't anything to be seen. He, he Nothing was illegal. Um, it just looked weird. But aside from that fact, every single time this happened, that was also added to Parsons' FBI file. So there was an example on that, and we'll wrap up and do some commentary um, this example was a 16 year old boy accused Parsons and three of his followers that he sodomized him during a black mass ceremony. And again, the police investigated only to find organization dedicated to religious and philosophical speculation. That's all they saw. That's all they were doing. There was nothing more. So that sets us up, I guess for part two, but thoughts so far on this. Probably just uh, shady lacy police work on their part. I imagine. Yeah, well, he was a handsome, confident white guy, like, in that place and time in America, like, all you had to do to get out of shit was be a handsome, confident white guy and tell the cops, like, no, 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 we're... Uh, We didn't uh, do that, we're just practicing our religion, which uh, happens to be uh, sodomizing young boys, but, you know... Don't mind, don't mind the pig in the background, don't mind the naked women standing from... He was, like, really good at turning the police away at being like, come on guys, come on. Well, and we're going to talk about this in part two, I think, because he was very debonair too. Like when you talk about him and the women and everything he did, like he was a smooth talker. He, you know, and I don't think Josh, you said like in that time, sadly enough, I don't think that time has changed much, which is shitty, but it is what it is. You know, not really. No, no. I mean, I think each decade with a couple of steps back for every step forward has gotten a little bit better. Agreed. Like, I'll give you when that you one. look at like the twenties through the forties, it's just fucking awful. Yeah, like people yeah. just sucked really bad. Yeah, no, agreed. And I think so. You know what we're going to cover in part two is even more juicier details here. Um, we literally get a character involved, which we're not going to mention because it's going to give it away. That is, I didn't even know he was mixed in with this thing. More about Crowley. More about everything that he did, and then his unfortunate demise. Parsons I'm I'm talking about um I I this is one of those things that I was excited to research uh because it just wow it, there's just yeah. so much stuff here this is a movie guys it definitely is and you know what this uh this order this magical order reminds me of heavily is the um I want to say psychic tv but the yeah. um Topi. 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 Yeah. I, yeah. Like, I was, like it reminds me yeah. heavily of Temple of Psychic Youth I was also I've been, be, 
Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I mean, just, uh, you know, with the admiration for Aleister Crowley and sex, sexual match magic and the rituals. Um, I think this was like almost the original Topi. Yeah. Like every time I hear about old Jack Parsons, uh, I think like, damn, he would have fucking loved Topi. Oh, Oh, him and and Genesis, him and Genesis would have been thick as thieves. Yeah. They would have been holding hands, skipping in the marigolds. Yeah. The hell. Yeah. Exactly. Well, so hopefully you guys uh, look forward to that part two. Again, we'll uh, finalize the Jack Parsons story. We think we might have some bonus Patreon. It really depends where you want to go with it. And then also, like we said in the beginning, we're going to take a quick break and we'll come back for season four. And we got some new things to roll out to you guys. Um, If you have a story or anything you want to call us on, write us on, you can call us at 801-252-69. (laughs) <laughs> bleep, bleep. 45 you can also write us at strangeuncles at gmail.com tell us your stories tell us your encounters tell us something that you want us to cover by all means you know we've got all kinds of stuff but we have room for more um, you can also check out our website at mystrangeuncles.com and you become a Patreon member um, I'm going to throw out you guys for any socials yeah uh, Strange Uncles Podcast on Instagram and Twitter or sorry Instagram and Facebook uh, just Strange Uncles on Twitter um follow us friend us rate and review us yeah rate and review us it helps with visibility and gets our show higher up in the rankings so if you would do that that would be great absolutely so anyway stand by for part two of this um and yeah hope everybody's doing okay out there i'll be kind of be on the road but we're still gonna record this uh next and yeah, interesting, fun. I, I feel like a kid in a candy store telling this story. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right, well, we'll see you guys next week. Close gates. You've been listening to a fourth-hand production.